and I'll pray uh, before we come to look at God's word. So please join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we give you praise for the joy of meeting together in person, for some, which some of us are doing tonight. I pray that this will not only be a good time of fellowship, uh, but a good time of growing in your word. I pray that you would do that for us now, both of those who are watching at home, those who are here at church. Please use me in my weakness as I seek to teach this passage. Help me to explain it correctly, to apply it thoughtfully, and help us all to receive your word by faith so that we might believe it and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we all want reassurance in the face of impending pain. This is certainly true for my children as they think about their upcoming immunizations. Uh, in the day or so leading up to their injections, our kids usually start to freak out about the needle that will soon be thrust into the side of their arm. This is particularly true on the car ride to the clinic. Uh, there are worried-looking facial expressions, kind of groans, panic discussions about who's going to go first. And like all parents, Ruth and I don't like to see our kids stewing in their own fear, and so we speak true and reassuring words to them in that moment. Things like, you know, your body's going to be stronger for this. You, you're less likely to get really sick. Uh, it'll only sting for a moment, but then comes the joy of the lollipop. You won't be on your own. I'll be holding you the whole way through. See, sometimes we need reassuring words in the face of pain. And that's what I think God actually gives us in this passage tonight. But the pain of this passage isn't that of a needle, but that of persecution. The opposition, the hostility towards Christians because they're Christians. And we need this reassurance, I think, because I suspect many of us think of persecution a bit like my kids think about immunizations. We're not, that all, we're not all that familiar with it. We worry about the potential discomfort and we fear it's coming soon. Uh, but I suspect many of you have actually already begun to feel the increasing hostility of our society towards Christianity. Uh, Steve McAlpine, in his book, Being the Bad Guys, writes these words that you might actually be able to resonate with. He says to the reader, I'm guessing that in the, that in the past year or so you've had a conversation with a non-Christian neighbour that didn't go well, or you've overheard a discussion between work colleagues expressing anger over a Christian view on a particular issue, or you've read or watched a piece in the media taking pot shots at biblical ethics. In the eyes of much of Western society, Christianity is the bad guy, or at least fast becoming so. It is a little bit unsettling, isn't it, to think that we are possibly now viewed by many as the bad guys and that actually things could get worse. And so like a parent to their fearful children, God is giving us reassuring words about persecution, about hostility in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And here are the three reassurances from God that I see in this passage. One, that God will bring growth through persecution. Two, that God will deliver justice for persecution. And three, that God will act in power within the context of persecution. 
Uh, but before we jump into those three points, I just want to orient your minds to the context of this book. In the first few verses, we get told who the author and who the recipients are. Read it with me, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second letter written to the church uh, in the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. This church had been planted by Paul and his missionary team. The Thessalonian Christians had believed Paul's message that God's promised king, Jesus Christ, had died and rose again to bring them forgiveness and eternal life, peace with the almighty and living God. They had received grace from God and peace with God because of their trust in that message, as verse 2 highlights. But the formation of this new Christian community kind of ruffled some feathers in that city. Like many parts of the world today, the response by others in that city was one of intense suspicion and hostility. Uh, In Acts 17, we read about the earliest days of this church and how an angry mob uh, was whipped up against these new Christians. Some of the believers, including a bloke named Jason, were dragged out of their house, publicly harassed, and then falsely accused of being troublemakers. And so in Acts 17, verse 6, this mob shouts at them, these men have caused trouble all over the world and now have come here. And Jason, he's welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The Thessalonian church was familiar with persecution. From its earliest days, it had been battered by society, opposed to its core allegiance to Jesus. Now just imagine if that was our church community. Imagine if our community was so hated by our neighbours that some of them thought they were in the right to bust into one or two of our homes, drag us out, and then just publicly shame us. Imagine coming to church the next week and seeing one or two of your brothers or sisters in the auditorium with an arm in a sling, scratches down the face from that incident. Do you think that kind of pressure might break us? What does it do to the Thessalonian church? Well, in God's grace, persecution doesn't break them. It actually appears to make them. Spiritual growth comes through their persecution. And that's the first reassuring thing I think God wants wants us to see about persecution here. Read with me verses 3 to 4. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. See, amidst their persecution, these believers aren't just surviving, they're not just hanging on by a thread, they're thriving. Their faith in Jesus, their love for one another, is growing more and more. And Paul just can't keep his mouth shut about this church when he's off visiting other churches. He sings their praises. He says he boasts about them. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. Uh, This isn't the kind of boasting that sort of seeks to puff up self. 
Paul's not saying, look, you know, check out my awesome little disciples here that I've created through my own powerful ministry. He is boasting in God's work, a thankful recognition of what truly is wonderful fruit in the lives of these believers. That's why he speaks of always giving thanks for them in the start of verse 3. It's a bit like if you had a particular teenager in your youth group Bible study who you knew was getting viciously bullied in her public school for her faith, but who you also knew was trusting in Jesus, sharing her faith with her classmates and loving those in your study. I mean, that's a believer kind of worth boasting about. You'd want to share of her faithfulness with the other leaders and the team debrief at the end of the night, hopefully not to brag about your own influence in her life, but to give glory to God for what he's doing in her and through her. Paul's words in verse 4 remind us that it's right to give God thanks and boast in his work when we see it on display in people's lives. But Paul's not just singing praises for, uh, Paul's not just praising God for the growth he brings despite persecution. He's praising God for the way he brings growth through persecution. That's what I think verse 5 is getting at in this text. So look at verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. See, the increasing faith and love of the Thessalonian believers is evidence. It's an example of the way God, in his sovereign control over all things, uses something bad to bring about something good for his people. God uses their persecutions to produce in them lives that are fit for the king and kingdom that they already belong to through faith in Jesus. It's another way of speaking about God's role in making us more and more like Jesus as we live for him in his kingdom. So why are these verses reassuring to us? Because they tell us that when persecution comes, when the hostility gets ramped up, God can use it for our good. We shouldn't see it as some kind of divine punishment on us. We shouldn't see it as pointless either. It is a means by which God grows us in our faith and in our love. And I think that's why the author of Hebrews actually places persecutions in the category of God's fatherly discipline, which in that context isn't so much punishment on a kid, but a teaching, a training of him or her. So the author of Hebrews writes, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? And then in verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. There is purpose in the pain here. Through the pain of persecution, God brings about the gain of faith and love, spiritual growth. And I think this is what you often find among the persecuted church of our world today. Uh, This photo uh, was taken from around 2017. It shows an Egyptian church meeting in the desert after their building was attacked and destroyed. One Egyptian church leader at this time commented on the way God was strengthening the church in Egypt through the persecution they were receiving. He said, what we are seeing happening in the Middle East is bringing us all together. 
We churches do not have the luxury of staying separate anymore. We have realised that what we have in common far exceeds what separates us. See, sometimes persecution has a way of stopping us from majoring on the minors in the Christian life, dividing over things of secondary importance, squabbling about them, getting distracted by them. By God's grace, sometimes persecution can be used to help his people actually major on the majors. Faith in Christ crucified and risen and love for one another. You see, this is true for us too. The increasing social pressure we are feeling now can grow us. Think about it. Opposition, increasing opposition, actually leads a Christian to ask very good questions. Uh, Questions that God can use to strengthen our faith. Questions like, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth being marginalised by my work colleagues or my friends? Should I really keep following him if it means that it costs me this much? You see, it's actually good to ask those kinds of commitment questions as a Christian. I actually remember wrestling myself with a couple of those questions in the last two years of high school when I felt mocked and marginalised by my friends uh, who simply just didn't get the whole Jesus thing my family was doing. But it was actually in those two years where I think God helped me to fully own my faith, where I really decided that, yes, Jesus is worth it. He really did die and rise again. He really does bring forgiveness and eternal life, and that's more precious than the approval of my classmates. He's not going to remain someone I have a a loose and kind of comfortable relationship with or connection to. He's going to be someone that I'm tethered to, whatever the cost. See, I did not like those last two years of high school, but I've actually since come to thank God for them because it was through that pain that God brought about gain. Now, and if you're going through something similar, and perhaps you are, let me encourage you to hang in there. Keep persevering because God can use this time for your good and for his glory. But second, this passage reassures us that God will bring justice in the face of persecution. Now, justice uh, in the face of any wrongdoing is a wonderful thing, correct? It's something that the human heart longs for. In fact, you can't get through most days without being faced with some level of wrong you want righted. You know, we feel it in the little ways. You get cut off on the way to work. You want that other driver booked. You want justice. Or you see someone unfairly slandered on Facebook and you want the moderator of the group to do something about it. You want justice. And haven't we seen it in the bigger ways too this week? a little girl abducted from her parents for 18 days. And as a father of three little girls, boy, do I want some justice. I want to see justice, as I suspect our whole nation does. You see, if we care about wrongdoing, would we expect our loving creator to care any less? 
In fact, the truth is that God does care much, much more than we do about injustice. And when it comes to the wrongdoing of persecution, God is wanting his people to know, he's reassuring you that justice will be done. Look at verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those, uh, give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Now, you might not be totally comfortable with the language of payback going on here, but all it means is that God will give back to people what is due to them for their sin, which again is just and right. It would be wrong for sin, any wrongdoing, to go unpunished by a holy God. And I suspect for the Christian who has actually experienced genuine, severe suffering at the hands of others for their faith, I suspect the idea of that their persecutor will be held to account is a great comfort, particularly where there's been a lack of justice in dealing with what's happened to them. See, just think for a moment back to Acts 17, back to our friend Jason, the Thessalonian believer who was dragged out of his house and then publicly shamed before his neighbours and the local magistrate. You think he's going to shy away from that verse? I think justice would have been a precious comfort to Jason. What about the little church in Nigeria, which the Barnabas Fund reported this week was attacked by bandits who killed one of its members and injured another? The idea of God's justice would surely be precious to the grieving family members. God's justice is good and right. And it's part of God's reassuring word to believers who have felt or are preparing to feel the pain of persecution. And notice that in this text, it's Jesus himself is the one who will deliver the justice on that date, on that day of his return. Verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah had spoken of a terrifying day of God's judgment in which the Lord would come with chariots of fire and bring down his anger and fury on his foes. Paul is saying here that Jesus is the Lord of that prophecy. He is the Lord who will come in awesome, overwhelming glory in judgment. He is the one who will shut out of God's eternal presence, his eternal glory, eternal enjoyment, those who have mocked, harassed, attacked his people, and have refused to repent as the gospel calls for. See, basically, this is God saying to a people who feel like they have been powerless punching bags that he has their back. They have a saviour who will come to their aid, who will bring them justice, and who will deal justly with those who trouble them. Uh, I joined a soccer league when I first came to Melbourne. And during one match, a guy from the other side fell over during a contest for the ball between he and I, and he immediately assumed I had deliberately tripped him. So in a rage, 
He jumped up, and with both hands, he just shoved me in the chest, hungry for an altercation. Now, I was, I was even more weak and scrawny back then than I am now, so I didn't stand much of a chance, but that didn't matter because right then, in that moment of hostility, one of my teammates, who was much taller, much bigger, much stronger, jumped in, grabbed this guy by the scruff of the neck and said, if you're having a go at him, you're having a go at me too, and threw him to the side. It was a glorious moment. (laughs) And you see, for persecuted Christians, God is reassuring them that they have an even greater saviour in Jesus. Not only has he died for their sins, not only has he risen again to life, he will return again and come to their aid on the last day. He will pick up those who have troubled them, verse 6, and throw them down in judgment. However powerful and scary the persecutors might be, they will be nothing compared to the glory of the might of Jesus on that day. On that day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. The day of Jesus' return will be a day of justice, divine punishment for persecutors, but divine relief for the persecuted, verse 7. Some of you are feeling, I'm sure, the relief of exams finished and holidays beginning. When Jesus returns, persecuted believers will feel an infinitely greater relief from their infinitely greater angst and struggle because their time of suffering will have ended. No more pain, no more unanswered justice. On the day of Christ, they, you, will marvel, verse 10, at what Jesus, the Almighty Judge, will do for his persecuted people. I think the truth of God's justice uh, helps us in a couple of ways. It reassures, reassures us that the awful things that we read about in Christian publications like the Barnabas Fund or Open Doors, that that will be brought to account. We can read about those awful situations of our persecuted brothers and sisters overseas and know be confident that the Lord Jesus will bring their persecutors to account if they remain defiant against God's call to repent. But God's justice also frees us from being eaten alive by frustration and bitterness when opposition comes. See, God's justice will deal with the sins committed against you for your faith too. God will see you when you lose your job or are unfairly reprimanded because of your commitment to Jesus, and he'll bring justice on that day. He will see it when you're the target of unjustified slander on social media because of your faith. People might hide behind a computer today, but God will bring that to account on the last day. He will see it when we're publicly shamed or hauled before the authorities for teaching what the Bible says about sexuality or gender. God will bring all of these things to account at the last day. Those who oppress you for your faith will have to answer to God. 
And you see, while it is actually appropriate to seek human justice where you can for such things, the problem of human justice is that it's human. It can miss things. It doesn't always get it right. And sometimes it just doesn't happen at all. But in such cases, a Christian doesn't have to lose hope because God is just. And you can entrust those painful experiences into his hands. And that's why Paul tells the Roman believers, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. See, what kind of crazy person could actually love their enemy like that? Well, it's the person who knows they don't have to avenge themselves. It's the person who's convinced that God is just. Be reassured, God will bring justice for the persecution experienced by his people. But third, this passage reassures us with the power of God to help us in the face of persecution. Uh, Since the Iranian Revolution of 1979, the hardline Islamic regime has been incredibly hostile to Christians in that country. I was reading an article recently about this uh, that described missionaries being kicked out since that time, evangelism outlawed, Bibles banned, pastors harassed and killed. In the eyes of the world, the Iranian church looked as though it should just simply wither away and die. Yet according to uh, the research organisation Operation World, the opposite has happened. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some estimating more than a million. Iran is believed to have the fastest-growing evangelical movement in the world. So how the heck do you explain that? Well, Paul's answer would surely be God's power. It is God who made their seemingly insignificant gospel endeavours, their little conversations with their neighbours, fruitful. He has done it by his power for the good of his people and the glory of Jesus. I think that's how Paul might answer that question. Because that is what Paul is pretty convinced that God can do for every church under pressure. And that's why he prays for God to keep doing it among the Thessalonians. You see that in verse 11 and 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness, your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays here that God's power will continue to work in the Thessalonians, as we looked at at the start, making them worthy of the calling into God's kingdom. Paul knows that only God can bring about that fruit of faith and love, and so he prays for it. But he also prays that God's power would continue to work through the Thessalonians, asking that God would make their desires to do good to others come to fruition, that God would bless all their deeds prompted by faith. You might think, you know, that their kids' club ministry would actually reach community families. 
that their neighbours would come to Christianity Explored, hear the gospel and believe, that their food bank ministries would provide the needed help uh, that they wanted to and actually be attractive to a watching world. And what the cool thing about this passage is, is that we actually see God answering this prayer in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul speaks of the grace God gave to the Macedonian churches, of which the Thessalonians belonged, who, he says, despite their poverty and persecution, had committed themselves to take up a collection for other needy churches. Paul writes there, he says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. You see, that's the sort of desire for goodness, the sort of deed prompted by faith that God's power brings about in a church community that brings glory to Jesus. See, the world around the Thessalonians uh, may have been quite hostile to them, but the world would have a hard time bad-mouthing the one who would call his followers to exhibit such sacrificial love. And an even harder time when they realise that the one who calls for sacrificial love actually showed it powerfully himself when he died on the cross for sinners. See, the Thessalonian church is a wonderful example of what God's power can do in and through his persecuted people for the glory of Jesus. I think it's easy for us to become pessimistic about our future as a church as we increasingly feel the pressure and hostility from the outside world. It's easy to simply turn inwards and withdraw from evangelistic endeavours, community engagement, because we think the world just wants nothing to do with us. But this is showing that we have a God who is powerful and can do wonderful things among us and in our community. Uh, God's often surprised me at a personal level by all the different people he's brought from our community into our Christianity Explore course, which I've been running since the start of last year. Uh, One person last year made it clear that uh, they had significant issues with the church and its teaching. They warned me from the outset that they'd be a hard nut to crack. But when I asked this person at the end of the course where they felt they were at with God, uh, this person said, well, I'm still kind of working that question out, but I really love what I see in Jesus. You see, God is powerful to win people over with the compelling gospel that we have, with the compelling truth of who Jesus is, even in hostile times, with people who have lots of different issues with the church. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you would also come to see how compelling Jesus is for you too. Uh, We've heard tonight that he will come to us a second time as the great judge. But don't forget the wonderful truth of the gospel that Jesus came first to be your great saviour, the one who loved you by dying for you at the cross. And God's power should lead the rest of us to pray like Paul does here, asking that God would work in and through us for the glory of Jesus because we know he can bring our deeds prompted by faith 
to fruition as we ask him to. We need those prayers now. We will definitely need them if the pressure against us increases. Uh, I've personally found the last two years of this pandemic completely draining. Uh, We have endured in Melbourne 262 days or nearly nine months of lockdown in total. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't really feel up for more hostility from the world right now. Most of us, I think, are loath to contemplate the idea of coming out of a decreasing pandemic only to be confronted with increasing persecution or opposition. That thought, I think, is overwhelming for most of us. And look, in reality, we don't know what our future looks like as Christians going forward. But if it does involve uh, increasing persecution, as many think it might, we should not be afraid. And we should not be overwhelmed. For God's word tonight has given us three reassurances that we need that he will grow us through that hostility. It won't be pointless. That he will deliver justice in the context of that hostility and for the persecution experienced. It won't go unpunished. And that his power will help us in the context of that hostility. It won't stop Jesus being glorified in our lives and through our deeds. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your reassuring word to us tonight. Uh, Most of us can't really say that we've experienced the kind of persecution that the Thessalonian believers did. But we do sense the increasing opposition of our culture towards us. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to remember in the months, the years ahead, the reassuring truths you have given us here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, Thank you that you can use persecutions to grow our faith and our love, that you are the just God who will deal with all those who trouble us, and we give you praise, Lord, that nothing can stop your power to work in and through us for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.